everyone. I'm here with Greg Blotter. Greg, welcome to the Ward family. Thank you. And Greg, where did life begin for you? Where did you grow up? I was uh, born and raised most of the time in Ogden, Utah. It was a great place to grow up. Our neighborhood at the time had lots of young families, lots of peers my age. Grew up with a group of about 12 boys, all my same age, and we did everything kind of as a pack. I go back and visit now, and all of those families have now uh, moved into their senior years, and not many kids in the neighborhood, but at the time it was a great place to grow up. As you were growing up, you mentioned this kind of group of friends that you had. Were there certain things that you really enjoyed doing or certain things that you found that you gravitated towards as a kid? I look back on that time, and I'm amazed at what our parents allowed us to do. For example, most of us had motorcycles when we were in in high school. These weren't like big, powerful bikes, but they were on off-road machines, 125s and 250s and stuff that we would drive to high school every day and like a pack of us drive into high school on on motorcycles uh, the thought of getting a motorcycle for a teenage boy now I, doesn't really register with me but our parents thought that was just fine a lot of people in the ward know you for scouting so i know you did scouting as a kid so what was that like for you scouting is a multi-generational thing in our family my dad was my scoutmaster uh, growing up and that group of 12 boys we were all in the same troop, and so uh, many of our memories are centered around scouting adventures that we had together. Uh, my dad was not always active in the church, but he loved scouting, and he wanted to have that experience with me, and so it was a great motivator for him to be active, at least during that part of his life, uh, when he had the Scoutmaster calling. And are there one or two memories from that time period that particularly stand out? My dad kind of resisted the idea of organized scout camps. He would do it under protest because parents would kind of insist on it for merit badge accumulation. But he really preferred the high adventure outdoor wilderness type backpacking trips and camping trips. And so he had a teepee of his own (laughs) that he built himself using lodgepole pines that he harvested from the Wyoming forests. And he had a special rack on his truck that he could haul these long teepee poles with. And when he set that up, it was large enough in diameter that you could have a fire in the center with all the boys circling that fire. And uh, we could fit the entire troop in there. So it, it, it held, you know, 15 people or so. And that's a great memory is sleeping in the teepee. As you were growing up, I know you do a lot of home improvement projects, a number of things on you know, cars, lots of very useful life skills there. Were those things that you learned as a kid with your dad, or did that come later in life? Exactly. My dad actually taught for Weber State College, which is now Weber State University. He taught building trades. Uh, so everything from uh, framing and electrical and plumbing to finished carpentry, all of, all of these things. And when he wasn't teaching during the summer months, he would hire himself out on remodeling jobs and bring me along to be his uh, carpenter's helper. Really, my job was to provide someone for him to yell at when he couldn't find his tape measure, but I'm not bitter about that at all. He taught me some of the the skills during those summer months uh, of helping him. And then a lot of that is skills that I've accumulated from watching YouTube videos and trial and error it's not done right until it's done three times and so you have a chance to do it wrong and then do it right again. 
Uh, we were just talking a fair amount about your dad, but were there certain things that, certain attributes that your mom had that you've tried to emulate over time or things that when you look back, you think of as influences that your mom had on you in those early years? Well, you know, we inherit things from our parents, characteristics and traits, skills. And some of them we inherit uh, consciously, and some of them we can't inherit, even though maybe there are things that we wish we didn't have as part of our personality. Talking about my dad once again, yeah, I think I can say that uh, my passion for scouting is something I inherited for him. My abilities in working on houses and cars and working with my hands in general is something that came from him. Unfortunately, my procrastination and not finishing projects and, and projects that just go on and on and on and on, I'm afraid that also comes from him. Uh, he, he had a lot of those projects in his life. And it's something that I hated as a kid growing up, and now I've created that for my own family, and I really wish I didn't. So we do inherit lots of things from our parents, um, positive and negative. For my mom... If I have anything that I can say I attribute to my mom, it's my love of the gospel. The testimony was not a, a key strength for my dad, at least a consistent strength for my dad, but for my mom, even during times of her life when she was not active in the church, she still had a strong faith, and, and I think that that's probably what transferred to me from my mom. As you were kind of growing up, were there certain either formative experiences or as you were building your own kind of testimony and stuff over time, were there certain particularly influential events or experiences that you had, or was it just a more gradual thing for you? Both. There, there have been significant experiences and a line-upon-line gradual building of my testimony. My parents divorced when I was six years old, and I spent most of my growing up years after that living with my mom until I reached high school age, and then I moved back to live with my dad again. And that back and forth between parents was very unsettling for me. And I can remember times during those years of just craving normalcy. I wanted to be like every other family and have the stability that I saw around me in the church of other families. And so that that is something that definitely influenced me greatly. The other probably big event during those years is when I was 15, my brother, my older brother, was 18. He committed suicide. Something like that is an event that changes families forever. I've always focused on that event in terms of how it affected me and the, the things that I had to come to terms with. I probably should have spent a lot more time thinking of how it affected my parents. To lose a child under those circumstances is got to be just so devastating, but I never really had those conversations with them about it. It was a painful topic, and we, the few times that it came up, the pain was still very close to the surface, and so we never really, I never really talked about it much with my parents, and they've both passed on, and that opportunity is gone now, but it's probably something I, I wish I would have done differently, is not just focus on my own pain and how it affected me, but also talk to my parents more about how it affected them. After you got done with the high school years and the kind of years, you know, in the youth program and so on, what came next for you in terms of did you go to college? You know, I, I know that you did a mission at some point. So how did you think about what you wanted to do next at that point in your life? Growing up, I mentioned that my father was not always active in the church. He was active during uh, scouting. 
My mom, when she remarried after the divorce, uh, she married someone who was not LDS. He was a member of the Greek Orthodox Church. And one of the compromises that they made in getting married is both of them decided that as a way of, I guess, maintaining a balance or keeping the peace, whatever, that they weren't going to be active in their in their religions, their respective religions. And so suddenly I found myself growing up in an environment where none of my family was active. And it would have been so easy for me just to stay home from church. There was nobody pushing me to, to get there and to engage in all the activities of active membership. But it was something that I, I just had that, that feeling, that need, that I really craved it, really, to be around believing members of the church. And part of this is maybe the normalcy that I mentioned earlier. The church provided great solidarity and feeling of belonging that I didn't always feel in a um, broken family. So I found myself attending church many, many years during my teenage years all by myself. And sometimes it was even a thorn in the side of my parents who would have to take haul me over to church in the car and then come back and pick me up at the end of, of meetings. But I stayed active during that entire time, and I look back on that, and I can't really explain what it was inside of me that, that provided that motivation, but I'm so grateful for it. I'm also reflecting back on the many people who provided mentoring, who were surrogate parents in some situations to help guide me through those times because my own parents were not stepping forward in that in that way to provide mentoring within a gospel context. So yes, at the end of high school, I spent oh, around six months just working, saving money to get out on a mission. I didn't go to college right out of high school. I, after saving money uh, for a bit of time, went straight out on my mission and was called to the Canada-Montreal mission, which was both English and French-speaking. Uh, we learned French in the MTC, but we were expected to know the missionary discussions in both languages because in that part of Canada, you never knew who was going to answer the door, whether they would be English speakers or French speakers, and so we had to be prepared for both. That was back during the time when we would memorize the missionary lessons word for word, so we had to have them memorized in both languages. And what was serving in Montreal like? Very cold. <laughs> Very cold. I've told this to my children, other people. Serving a mission is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Hard work physically, hard work in terms of discipline, and difficult in terms of you know getting along with that companion that you, you're living with 24-7. It's something I look back on, and I'm glad I did it. I'm glad it's done. <laughs> and it really is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And as you went through that experience, were there certain investigators or certain experiences that you had that stand out, I guess, either positively or negatively? A couple of them, yeah. We had this one. The Montreal mission is very large geographically. It included a little piece of upstate New York, went all the way far south as, as far south as Ottawa, uh, Canada, and Ontario, and then it extended all the way up, technically all the way up to the to the Arctic Circle, but we didn't have missionaries up that far. But the farthest north areas of the mission were a 14-hour drive north of Montreal. So it was like being transferred from San Francisco to Seattle 
it was a really big mission geographically, and I was assigned during the latter part of my mission to one of those far north areas. And it was so far north, the winters there were just brutal. And so we would only put missionaries in there for six months. And I went up in April to open up a new area, and halfway through midsummer, received a, a new companion, rotated companion, and then closed down the area in October. When we went up in April, uh, there was still ice on all the, the lakes and rivers. And when we left in October, we left in a blizzard, left in a snowstorm. So they have a full six-month winter up there. They have forests, but the forests, the trees are, their growth has been stunted, and, and they'll have very thick trunks on the trees, but the branches will be just short and stubby. And that's a function of the winters being uh, so long and brutal up there. It was far, far enough north that we could see the northern lights, even during the summer. And it was right at the mouth of the St. Lawrence Seaway, where it opens into the Atlantic Ocean. So we're the only missionaries in our mission that actually had Atlantic Ocean beaches. And, and during the summer months, you know, it was warm enough that we could go play Frisbee on the beach and stuff like that. that it was considered an independent area for our missionaries. We weren't part of a zone because we were so far detached physically. And so we would report directly to the assistants to the president for our weekly reports. And then when it came time for a zone conference, they didn't hold zone conferences as often then as they do now for missionaries, but when it came time for a zone conference, we would drive down to Quebec City, which was the closest established zone. And for us, that was about a 10-hour drive. And so attending zone conferences was a three-day adventure. We would spend one day driving down, stay with some missionary friends, attend zone conference, and then the third day we'd drive back home. And it was always a bit of a phenomenon. The elders from the north are coming down. And so that was really special in terms of the adventure part of it. But it was also very isolating because I spent six months up there and you're just there with your companion, you, you don't get to know the other missionaries in the mission. And so they knew my name, but they didn't know me or much about me or anything. And so I, I didn't have as many missionary friends as maybe others did because of that. Anyway, while we were up there uh, in the far north, uh, we came across a lady who was a former Catholic nun. And she was... Uh, prepared um, by the by the Lord to receive the gospel, and uh, she got baptized during during our time up there. And one of the things that was special about it was not just her background as a nun, but she understood the significance of baptism and how it's a, a rebirth. And she was from that area originally, and so she chose to be baptized in the ocean in the little town, the little fishing village where she was born originally. And it was, and these, this was all of her choosing. The symbolism and the significance of it was, was just a really beautiful event. And so I, I remember her and that baptism especially for those reasons. The other one is a family that I knew in Montreal during earlier service where they had been the parents had been baptized by the previous set of missionaries. And then when we came into the area, they had a lot of kids. Uh, I can't remember how many, but somewhere around 10 kids in the family. And for the ones that were older and old enough to be baptized, they didn't want them to just get baptized based on the decision of the parents. They wanted it to be 
their decision and have them receive the missionary lessons and, and make the decision on their own. And so we came in gladly on a regular basis to teach the children in that family. And we took the regular missionary lessons and then kind of adapted them for a younger audience. And so many wonderful memories from, from that experience. This was back when the missionary rules were different. Nowadays, you can't hold, missionaries can't hold a child on their lap or have physical contact with children. But back then, it was a different set of missionary rules. And we would come into the house ready to teach a lesson. And the kids would be hiding behind the couch and behind the door and everything, just ready to tackle us. And, and it, was, it was just a ball. And we loved them, and they loved us. And, and the, their baptism was performed by their father, which was the way it should be. But just a wonderful experience teaching them. And that's the main significant relationship from people we taught that I've maintained over the years. And the parents, uh, their name is the Lalmont family. The parents from that family came out to California, and we hosted them here. It's the first time they'd ever been outside of Canada, and we hosted them here and took them to all the tourist places around the Bay Area, down to Carmel and Monterey, up to San Francisco. Showed them a wonderful time here in California, and it was it was just wonderful to be able to do something memorable for them, for all the memories they had helped create for me as a missionary. So once you were done with your mission. You get back, and at this point, you go to school, or was there anything in between? Yeah, no, it went, went straight into to college. I had um, been fortunate enough to receive uh, scholarships at all three of the big Utah uh, universities, University of Utah, Brigham Young, and Utah State. I chose Utah State because uh, my goal was to go into engineering, and they had the strongest engineering program of the three. But in addition, they also gave me the sweetest scholarship. They, they gave me a four-year full-ride scholarship, and that was very enticing. And there was also an emotional component there because Logan, Utah is really ground zero for our family. Both my parents were raised in Logan and went to high school at Logan High. In fact, they lived in houses where they could see each other's house um, from where they lived. That's how close they lived uh, geographically. And so a lot of family ties, a lot of emotional appeal to going to college at Utah State for that reason. And then as time goes on, you so you graduate from Utah State. What ultimately brought you out to the Bay Area? Utah State, like I said, had a very strong engineering program. And Hewlett Packard came out to interview computer science uh, grads. And they said, oh, we'll, we'll talk to, you know, College of Engineering too, and I interviewed with Hewlett Packard. They liked what they saw. They flew me out to California for another round of interviews and received an offer from them. Back in those days, HP was kind of the it company to work for. It was kind of the Google of that day where everybody, they had a, an enticing work culture. It was called the HP Way and uh, very innovative in terms of their technologies and engineering. Like I say, kind of the Google of, of that period in technology. And so I came out and worked for HP for a long time. Around 20 years of my career I spent working for HP. You know, as time goes on, you, you met Laura and you guys uh, fell in love and, and have now kind of formed a family. And I guess as you think about that set of transitions from, you know, going from being single to married and then married to then being a parent, what was that like for you in terms of that sequence of steps? 
I spent so many years as a single adult, a young single adult uh, out here. The Stanford Third Ward at the time was uh, the singles ward available to me, and it was a wonderful experience in that ward. Large ward, really dynamic people, talented, amazing uh, people who were members of that ward. And I don't regret it any of my time there, but the one thing it wasn't was it, it wasn't really productive ground for me in terms of getting married. I dated a lot. It might have been one of those situations where if you're trying too hard, it doesn't yield the results you might expect. So I dated a lot, and it never really panned out in, into a marriage relationship. And I reached the point where they were ready to boot me out because I was getting too old. And so it was one of these, you can't fire me, I quit. So I left the ward and started attending the family ward, which was the Heritage Oaks ward at the time. And the bishopric there put their arms around me and welcomed me, embraced me as a new member of the ward, uh, so much so that they made me scoutmaster, which was a really curious decision when I look back on it. I was thrilled to do it. I look back on that. That, that took some courage on their part to take a, a single young man like me and put me in a scoutmaster. And it was in that role that I met Laura's two brothers who were members of my troop. And eventually I can remember going to Jeff Pickett, uh, Laura's uh, younger brother, and saying, I've been thinking about asking out your sister. What would, the, what would you think about that? And he thought it was a great idea and gave me a big thumbs up and everything. Um, it's kind of an odd way to meet someone, <laughs> you know, have their her brothers in my scout troop, but kind of the way it worked out. And um, it has been a dream come true in so many ways that I never could have anticipated. Having grown up in a disrupted family, lacking that solidarity that I always craved, the normalcy, it's something that I never anticipated that I would have for myself. I thought that that would always kind of elude me. And in marrying Laura, also came solidarity with the Pickett family, which is a tremendous blessing and something that I never anticipated that I would have for myself. And I will eternally be grateful to, to Laura for that. She knew my background, my history with family and, and different events that had happened. And she knows that there's baggage that comes along with that. And she was able to move forward with faith and courage and, and I've reaped the blessings from that. And it's been wonderful. And you gave a really great sacrament meeting talk recently, and you talked about recording stories for people and so on. What are some of the stories about you that you think would be interesting or important for your kids or grandkids, future generations to maybe know about you beyond what we've already talked about, if there's anything that comes to mind? There's the sad stories, there's profound stories, but I think the best stories the ones that people will latch onto and, and read and tell again and again are the funny stories. Even though I gave that sacrament meeting talk, and I do believe in the importance of recording or documenting these stories in some fashion, whether they get put out on FamilySearch.org or, uh, or just for consumption of your immediate family, I think um, capturing these stories is so important. But I haven't done it for myself yet, and I need to. There's stories of all those varieties that, that I need to capture so that they are available for my kids, if nobody else. 
I think some of them will, will remain private and others sure that we'll put out on, on family search as well. That will be something for those folks to look forward to. And I know at least for me, uh, as long as I have known you, I have learned numerous new things about you in this conversation. So I'm very much appreciative of that. And I've just really enjoyed this opportunity to sit down and, and talk a little bit. And for anyone in the ward who doesn't know Greg or doesn't know the Blotter family, you would be well served to come say hi and get to know them and have them be a part of your life. So thanks again for doing this, Greg.